The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, put down that Prozac sandwich and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 413, featuring interviews by Mark Dunn, recorded live at TechEd Europe 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD in our TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who just woke up from a beef brisket coma, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much and welcome back to a special edition of .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin here on the East Coast of the United States of America as I am twice a week. Richard Cam will be here in just a minute. Uh, did you know that this Monday, that would be yesterday, is the most depressing day of the entire year? True story. It's called Blue Monday. I read about this online, so it must be true. That, uh, you know, this is when, uh, taxes and post Christmas and, uh, you realize that you haven't kept up your New Year's resolutions. This one, most people are bummed out. So if you are bummed out, take heed. By the end of the week, you should feel a lot better. Uh, Richard, today we have a show that's a little bit different. Do you remember when Mark Dunn went to TechEd Malaysia last year and interviewed a bunch of people there? I do remember that. It was uh, it was really kind of cool for me because there was this idea that we had parallel recording going on. We were recording shows together, and Mark was also getting shows, and then we got to pull it all together and, and listen to everything at once. Yeah, well, that's what we're going to do today. Mark Dunn is back, and he uh, interviewed some people at TechEd Europe last year. And uh, welcome back, Mark. Hey, Carl. Great to be here. You're turning into our .NET Rocks field correspondent. This is pretty cool, man. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough gig, but somebody has to do it, right? Yeah. So we missed each other at Dev. Uh, I was at Dev Connections, and you were a tech ed uh, developer and got to talk to some of those people there. Let's roll some of these, and you can tell us about it. Starting with your interview with Bob Boschman, what was that all about? Oh, I ran into uh, Bob uh, in the speaker's room, and uh, I, I was just, you know, thrilled to get to talk about SQL Server with Bob. Uh, you know, he's one of the, the best gurus on that subject around, 
And, uh, you know, I just sort of ran into him and asked him uh, what, what he was passionate about these days. Well, and I love this. This is like the callback back to the original .NET Rocks here, the, the conversations in the speaker's lounge. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's roll that one see what we got. Uh, well, what sort of talks have you been doing uh, this week? Well, I've been doing talks on a lot of different subjects with SQL Server 2008, but actually it's every subject but my favorite subject in 2008, which is the spatial data types. Oh, wow, that's a good one. Uh, you know, that's something I've heard a lot about, but I don't really know uh, that much about it other than it can be used with mapping applications. Mm -hmm. So could you, could you tell us a little bit about spatial data in SQL Server? Sure. So SQL Server added spatial data types in SQL Server 2008. And the spatial data type is really the killer feature for programmers in 2008. People think of spatial as sort of a niche, but and I did too. But then you realize that every database has spatial data in it already. If you have an address field in any of your tables, you right. have spatial data. And what you can do with spatial data is pretty amazing. They put in an um, Open Geospatial Consortium um, standard library in it. And since the spatial data type was actually built using the .NET user-defined type architecture, sure, you can take the spatial data library and you can actually push it over to the client. In fact, you can install it on the client and do whatever kind of spatial you would like on the client, too. SQL Server is a good repository for spatial data, but it's not the only place you can use it. And in addition, there's some nice virtual Earth um, features as well. You can use it to integrate with virtual Earth. But the nicest thing is the integration between that and the client. And, of course, the spatial indexes have to live on the server. Right. So when we talk about that data type, is it sort of storing lat-long coordinates? Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to imagine what, what you store as spatial data. Well, there's a proprietary format that they store things in. But basically, yeah, that's what they're storing, latitude, longitude, or X and Y, depending on if you have geometry or geography. And then something called the spatial reference identifier and the spatial reference identifier basically identifies um, what kind or what standard of spatial data you're storing. So, for example, the spatial reference identifier for GPS data would be 4326. The one that Esri usually uses is 4269. Yeah. And it just matters, um, you know, what's, what standards they're going by, what surveys they were going by when they did the data. Right. So that that is basically what you're storing, but it's storing in a proprietary format. Now... The way you get data in and out is with all the Open Geospatial Consortium standard formats. And in addition, they provide GML, the geographic markup language. Right. So a lot of different standard support. But, yeah, that's basically what you're storing. Okay, gotcha. So I'm just trying to imagine if somebody wrote an application and say they wanted to zoom in uh, to, to get better rendering uh, or pan to move across a map, I imagine under, under the hood that's uh, generating queries and utilizing the indexing that you talked about to retrieve the data. That's true, although the indexes are mostly used for some of the spatial operations like intersection. Intersection would use an index. So imagine if I had taken a lot of pictures in Barcelona and I want to look at all the pictures that I took in Barcelona. If I have a spatial, um, say, a polygon, because mm -hmm. they can't just do points. They have polygons and they have um, line strings as well. But say I have a polygon that represents the city limits of Barcelona. I can go and plot my pictures within the city limits of Barcelona. In fact, I've been showing this really nice demo this week that allows you to capture information or encode information, geocode information, with pictures. If you have a really expensive, nice camera, you can have a GPS on it. Or if you want to go up and geocode manually like I did, um, you can go and geocode where you've taken your picture. 
and then you can have a spatial data-based picture album that basically tells you, I would like all the pictures within 30 miles of Barcelona or all the ones downtown or different places like that. And basically what they'll do is an intersect between the coordinates you give it as the you know place that you want to look for and the pictures you've taken. And the spatial indexes are used by the intersection algorithm. Nice. So uh, I imagine something like Virtual Earth, it's, uh, it's probably pretty easy to, uh, to tie that into uh, the spatial data. Uh, it's in, it's in relatively Server. straightforward to tie it into Virtual Earth. There is no great, like Virtual Earth doesn't have a method on it that says, go get data from SQL Server. But there's a couple or three or four different ways to do it, and it's you know straightforward to get your data out there. In fact, this application uses both the Dundas map controls and the Virtual Earth as well. Oh, cool. I, I've heard about the Dundas controls, but I haven't had a chance to take a look at those yet. Well, they are going to be included, I believe, in the next revision of reporting services. They're not quite in reporting services just yet, although some of them have been released for reporting services as sort of part of, part of the feature pack, I think it's called. Um, but the map ones haven't been released yet. The SQL Server Management Studio actually has a nice feature where there's a spatial tab. So if you actually have spatial data, it's fairly useless to sit there and look at the binary. So what they'll do is they'll actually give you a tab to go look, and it will plot it either on a graph or on a map of the world. And you can union all in the map of the world to plot with your data. So it looks really nice, and you can get that right out of Management Studio. All right, very, very sweet. Uh, so what's next for you, Bob? What are you doing after TechEd? Well, I'm going home for a whole day, and then this is my the conference part of the year. I'll be going up to SQL Pass, and I'll be doing about a day-long pre-conference talk on SQL Pass about all the new developer features in SQL 2008. And then the next day I'll be doing, I think they call it a spotlight talk um, on spatial data. So I'm getting rev for that talk, as you can tell. I can tell. Sounds to me like we're going to end up with a whole show around spatial data. That's just a huge topic. Mark, um, w w was there like a wait staff like serving dinner in there or something? Uh, it was, sounded like you were at a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, it, it was like being in a restaurant. I caught Bob right after lunch one day. Oh, okay. Uh, so you're hearing dishes clank around in the background. So, so Mark, who are we going to hear next? Well, uh, the next person I ran into was an old friend, John Flanders. Uh, you know, he and I both have been doing BizTalk for a long time. And uh, we wanted to talk about something other than BizTalk. Uh, John has a new book coming out on REST. Uh, so we get into, uh, you know, some discussions of workflow, uh, WCF, and REST. Excellent. Let's roll that and listen to it. Uh, so, John, what sort of talks have you been uh, doing this week? Let's see, this week, uh, my first talk, we I did a little demo for Kent Brown. I did a little bit of uh, Dublin, a little bit of WF40. Uh, yesterday, I did a talk on REST and WCF. And uh, today, I'm doing another one on um, Dublin WF services. All right, sweet. Uh, you're, you're known as sort of a workflow guru, aren't you? I guess so. You could say that, yeah. I've done a lot of work with WF3.0. All right, sweet. Uh, what can you tell us uh, about what's new in Workflow 4.0? Well, 4.0, I mean, I mean, it's um, it's very all new. Um, in fact, it, it's sort of a, a whole new um, runtime. Same sort of ideas, you know, the same sort of um, principles, activities, and workflows, and um, designers, persistence, and tracking. Um, but 
you know, it's basically a whole brand new engine rewritten from the ground up. Right. So, um, it's, uh, it's pretty neat, right? I think it fixes a lot of the problems that customers ran into with 3.0. Yeah, that that's going to be welcome in the industry, believe me. Uh, have they changed the rules engine at all? Uh, I know that we had the forward chaining rules engine that was different than the one in BizTalk. Right, right. And the, the rules engine was a little different. Um, I, I, I don't know exactly what their plans are for the rule engine. I've heard uh, varying degrees of um, rumors about that. Um, I, I know that one of the things they plan to do for the rule engine for 4.0 is make it easier to debug. And, right. and to track, which is really difficult, both in BizTalk and in, in Workflow 3.0. Um, but beyond that, I don't know very much about any other plans. Right. Yeah, and I used to do uh, quite a few talks on the rules engine for Workflow. So debugging was effectively uh, turning a, a config setting on and having it spill it out into a trace file. And trying to look into the tracing file or tracking file, yeah. Right. Not very useful. Yeah, there was no real, real good way to interactively, you know, and we're, as developers, we're used to going into a debugger and stepping through and seeing, uh, yeah, line having the by intermediate line. window and all that good stuff, right? I mean, we're kind of spoiled, right? I mean, like be, being able to see all the call stacks and variables and stuff that, you know, like 10 years ago, right? That was, you know, it was all trace files, right? Yep. That's right. So yeah, it, uh, I, I think they're going down the right path, though. Uh, what do you think about having a single workflow technology that sort of rules them all? Uh, that, I guess that's kind of the idea with workflow is that yeah. we, we, we'll learn at one time, and then regardless of what server we're dealing with, we, uh, if we do something workflow-ish, we should be looking at the same workflow designer. I think that's a good, it's certainly a good principle, right? I mean, it's a good, I think it's a certainly a good goal for them to start with. Um, you know, the problem with the 3.0 is that, um, in terms of it had some scaling problems and, you know, um, some, uh, not just scaling problems, but also, um, just, uh, performance problems. And so, you know, what we see with 4.0 is, you know, um, a 10 to 100 times performance improvement, depending on what you're talking about. Um, uh, incredibly improved, uh, persistent size, uh, reduced, um, so, uh, and you can use it without the workflow runtime. You don't even need a runtime. You can just say, you know, activity.invoke. So it's much easier to use in, let's say, like a, a Windows app, a WPF app, or a ASP.NET app. You don't have to have this whole big um, runtime. So I think the things that they've done in 4.0 um, are going to make it possible to sort of fulfill that vision of, you know, one workflow engine across, you know, BizTalk, SharePoint, Whatever other server, right? Right. Uh, and Dublin, I've, right? Yep. And I, I thought one day we'll probably see it go into SQL Server because integration services seems like a workflowish thing to do. Yeah, I, that'd I be haven't nice. heard that, but I haven't heard that either. But that'd be nice. It seems like it would be a good fit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I agree. Well, talking about scaling issues, uh, one of the one of the problems we had with some clients uh, were you know trying to host it basically in IIS mm-hmm. and uh, call it from ASP.NET. And I remember seeing on your your site. I'm a, a big big fan of your stuff. Uh, you basically built a ASP front end uh, for workflow design at one for point for the designer. Yeah, yeah, for the designer. I thought that was awfully cool. Uh, can you give us any any advice on how what what's sort of the best practice for dealing with workflow uh, on the web? Well, you know, I think the the direction that they're going, and and they kind of started this direction with 3.5, and they've sort of extended it with 4.0, which is basically the talk I'm doing today, which is um, a workflow as a service. 
So whether you are interacting it from an ASP.NET application or from a Windows Forms application, the idea of the workflow as a service, um, and and um, at some point they promised us a, an in-process channel with WCF, so it wouldn't even be an out-of-process call necessarily, but you'd still treat the workflow as you know being behind a service facade. And um, I think that that's the best way to approach it because what you get there then is you get the um, WebF teams their their hosting model, right? So they build the host, they deal with correlation, they deal with um, all of those issues. Which, if you were building it, let's say in ASP.NET, I, I helped a customer do that, and um, you know we had some huge amount of lines of code in the project. I don't remember the number of lines of code, but I can tell you that like eighty percent of it was just the hosting. Sure. Right, starting the runtime, managing instances, managing getting messages to instances, and that's you know great if you really want to you know customize that experience. But mostly people want workflow because they want sort of a, a customizable uh, engine, right? They don't really want to customize the host, so to speak. They just want to be able to drop different workflows in and get different behavior. Sure. So a workflow as a service. Um, you know, even if, again, you're not necessarily thinking about another box or, you know, scaling it out, um, but just thinking of it as a service, I think, and using the workflow service host, um, I think in 3.5, that's a better idea. That's what I've been telling people to do with 3.5. But in 4.0, they're, you know, again, um, really um, pushing that as, as the way to do it in most cases. If you're an ISV, right, if you're a server team at Microsoft, well, then, you know, maybe you're going to build your own host. But but I think the ninety um, percent case for customers is workflows as services. Yeah, and I I think you know they're they're looking for things to free them from having to write all the plumbing code these days. So once you're you're down to writing plumbing, it, it doesn't become quite uh, as as fun an experience. No, and I th- and that was one of the huge uh, adoption blockers I think with three was. You know, once you you looked at it, you looked at the designer, you look at a console app, and you go, oh, well, that sounds you know really good, but then when you get into the nuts and bolts of actually what you have to do in order to host Workflow 3.0, that uh, scared a lot of people off, and I think rightly so. Uh, Well, let's move on and talk about WCF a little bit. Uh, What's new and exciting there? Well, I mean, for me, uh, the thing that I'm most uh, sort of interested in right now is the the REST programming model that they uh, added in 3.5 as well. So... um, I'm a big proponent of that style for building services versus using, uh, let's say, um, an RPC style like, like SOAP. Like, um, you know, uh, you don't have to use SOAP in an RPC way, but, you know, sort of the default everything, even with WCF or using SOAP, is really just an RPC, um, you know, XML technology. And uh, so I've been doing a lot of work in REST, and in fact, I've got a, a book coming out at the end of November called RESTful.net from O'Reilly, if I can plug my book sure, a little bit. Sure, go right ahead. RESTful.net yeah, from so, O'Reilly. So it's it's all about um, uh, the REST programming model, not not so much um, REST uh, in general as an architectural style, which, you know, there's some good books on that as well, um, but just really how do you use it with WCF and the, and the programming model um, and... Um, the um, the infrastructure that they've given us now in 3.5 um, to build those kinds of services. So that's really the the biggest, I think it's the biggest, newest thing with WCF. Uh, in 4.0, they're making some minor enhancements. You know, we might see a couple more channels, um, some better performance in some areas, uh, simplified configuration, 
um, is another thing that they're really pushing. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I sort of push REST as well, because um, with the REST programming model, you can actually build a service and host it without having any config, right? There's no config options. And, you know, again, we talk about, like, blockers to uh, technology adoption with, like, workflow. I think one of the big blockers for technology adoption of WCF has been the just... Um, you know, potential nightmare of the configuration files. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I always figured there would be third parties, right, tools, you know, that would make that easy for us, but... It hasn't really happened yet, has hasn't, it? It hasn't really happened, that's right. So I know, you know, for 4.0, one of the things that they're really trying to do is figure out what are the core scenarios that customers want to do and just make those scenarios just, you know, super easy. Right. Yeah, that's a, a good goal to have. Programmers yeah. expect things to be super easy now. Yeah, and there really isn't any reason why it uh, shouldn't be in the in the vast majority of cases, right? There's always the, you know, again, there's the 10% case where you have to go in and really customize things, but, you know, the 90% case should just be, you know, pretty straightforward and simple. Right. I, I hate having to open config files and directly edit them now. Uh, yes. I've, I've gotten to where I expect to be able to do that through a, a dialogue of some sort. Mm -hmm. And uh, almost the same thing with uh, XML schemas. I used to, to do a lot of custom configuration in XML schemas. Right. I want a tool to do that with now. Yes. I, I don't want to use Notepad. Yes. Wow, you guys really got into the new version of WF there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a topic close to my heart, so something I really enjoy talking about. W, you know, Workflow has been, I, I've talked to the people that have been doing Workflow, and, um, you know, it's been mixed. Reviews have been mixed about it. Just, you know, the way that they thought the designer was going to work versus the way it does work and workarounds. Richard, what's your, what are you hearing? Well, it's interesting that we're all the way to version 4, and still, I feel like we're still wrestling to figure out what we really want from Workflow. I mean, it's, a, it's one of the more ambitious projects I've ever seen Microsoft take on to yeah. try and really build a key library for several different products. You know, I mean, WPF is unique. Your alternative is GDI32. WCF is a better consolidation because they dragged in remoting and web services and so forth and gave us a great library. But WF, now we're talking about the workflow that's in SharePoint, the workflow that's in BizTalk, workflow as a standalone development environment. Like, that's just a hard thing to do. And it sounds yeah. to me, and maybe, Mark, you could back me up on this, we haven't really heard a good story of a migration path from W. F3 to WF4. No, I, I've heard the same thing. Uh, yeah, same thing here. I'm not. I'm not sure what the uh, the answer is going to be for that. In fact, I've heard. Uh, I've heard that there there may not be. But you know, there's migration and there's migration. I think yeah. all developers would like it if yeah. I'm a W3 developer and I have an app that when I fire, I load in WF4, it just works. Right. I mean, we we come to expect that from Microsoft. But I would also live with like an, a, a, a migration wizard yeah. where I ran this thing and it went through my code and made changes to move it to four. And then I got to go inspect for, for problems and do some testing. And then I think the sort of next level down from that is, you remember when we jumped from Visual Basic to Visual Basic.net and we had those advisors that said, this is what your code looks like now. And here's stuff that's just not going to work. Yeah. And the code that it upgraded you to was, wasn't really wasn't really VBnet. It wasn't. It wasn't moving forward. It was a compatibility layer. So, well, you, you know, but at least it worked, right? Well, and I just wonder if we're there. the The only thing with with workflow is that this not this is not Visual Basic. It doesn't have the level of adoption 
that that uh that something like that has so i just hope that right i really am concerned and again i don't work for microsoft or anything you know but i'm always concerned when we leave early adopters in the dust your punishment for jumping into workflow is not having a good answer going forward yeah it's unfortunate well we'll see what happens we don't really know we're just speculating uh, mark you talked to pat helland oh yeah man pat helland's one of my favorite people in the whole world pat helland's awesome yeah, it was just a thrill to uh, to get to sit down for a couple of minutes and chat with him. All right, well, let's roll it. Well, it's good to see you, Pat. And I got to say, you always have some very interesting talks at conferences. Well, thank you. I kind of think nobody's ever accused me of being on the wall. Let's just put it that way. Right. I think of different things and have fun with it. Yep, always fascinating topics. So, uh, what have your talks been uh, about this week? Uh, kind of five different topics. I did one on Monday, which was uh, thinking about the how relational data is changing and how it's not quite covering all of the things we need. And that talk was called, If You Have Too Much Data, Then Good Enough is Good Enough. Um, <laughs> That's a great topic. Tuesday, I wanted to talk about how when you look at reliability and fault tolerance, how as we're trying to checkpoint our state at farther distances to handle data center failures and things of that nature, how that's changing what the application sees. And we can't do transparent fault tolerance, and we're beginning to involve the application in reliable systems. And right. I called that talk Building on Quicksand. Yes. Um, on Wednesday, I wanted to talk about rich internet applications, which are, you know, how can you run an app or a part of an app in the browser? And we see that with Silverlight. And sure. can you do offlineable stuff? And how can you think about integrating that? And I pulled back and, and brought back the emissary design pattern that I first talked about almost 10 years ago. So that talk on Wednesday was called Rich Internet Applications and the Emissary Design Pattern. Awesome. Then that takes us to Thursday, where they they were kind enough to let me have a general session and talk to the whole conference. And I really wanted there to try to do something I thought would be topical for people. And I wanted to pursue where is electricity going in data centers. I was shocked to find out that 2% of the United States electricity in 2008 is going to running data centers, and it's growing and doubling every five years. So why, what, what can developers do about it? And called that talk Green Computing Through Sharing. And finally, here on Friday, just an hour or so ago, I did a uh, Metropolis talk, one of the ones I'd written a couple of years ago, called uh, Metropolis Buildings and Applications, which looks at how buildings evolve and tries to highlight what we can learn in application development from that. Amazing. Well, I tell you what, the the green computing topic is something uh, I haven't I haven't heard about. And uh, I'd, I'd love to dig into that a little bit if you have some time. Sure. And, and so, I mean, I just started doing research and reading where is power going and, and how, are, how are these data centers, you know, why is there so much power being consumed by the data centers? And it, it turns out there's a lot of inefficiencies in the conversion of power from the utility down into being processed on a CPU and used by a CPU. There, But even more interesting to me was that there's pre-allocation of space and reservation of space by different users within the data center, which means that you build out the infrastructure. You have to pre-allocate too much power distribution infrastructure. And that seems to be a one of the driving factors behind virtual machines. And right. why do we do virtual machines so that we can load balance the computation within the data center and explaining how that can actually be used to save power? Sure. And we, we were actually talking to one of the guys that set up the uh, hands-on labs here at TechEd this year, and he was telling me they had a, I believe it was a 24-blade server, 
and they had virtualized all of the hands-on labs. Oh, that as, doesn't surprise as me. As a test. And uh, they, they were running an HP server with a terabyte of RAM on it, mm-hmm. and it's actually capable of running 250 concurrent uh, virtual machines. That doesn't surprise me. It depends upon the work of the virtual machine. But you can run many of them on a single physical box unless you, know, you start getting into the allocation of the utilization. But it can be a tool to much more efficiently manage your physical resources and much more efficiently manage the electricity that you consume. Right. And I guess most companies look at doing that to cut down on their hardware cost. But uh, this is a totally different angle in cutting down on Power consumption. I was surprised to, to realize that in 2001, the combination of power and cooling infrastructure with electricity was more expensive than hardware. In 2004, the infrastructure alone was more expensive than the server hardware. And in 2008, just the electricity alone costs you more as an owner than buying the servers. And so we're seeing people throwing away you know, energy inefficient servers because it doesn't make sense to run a perfectly good server if it uses up too much electricity. Right. And what do you think about cloud computing and the fact that there are probably going to be a lot of, um, I guess, service host popping up for that sort of thing in the future? All the more opportunity for sharing. All the more opportunity for people who want to use cloud computing to get the resources for a lower price tag. Now, sharing has its risks. Sharing has its challenges. You know, because will you have congestion? Will you have an inability to get the resources when you're sharing them with others? But we're building out systems which are going to offer such cost advantage, and we will increase the availability and the confidence that people will have to the point where, over time, gradually, more and more of our computing will move to the cloud, in my opinion. I I like to tell people, it would be absolutely lovely if I could have a dedicated freeway lane to drive home to, you know, from the east side in Redmond to where I live in downtown Seattle. It's probably cost prohibitive for there to be a lane reserved for Pat. Right. And so I have to share freeway lanes with other people, and that allows a lot more to happen because we share. When we look at the way we've run PCs until recently, they've been kind of allocated to a particular resource because we've not felt that they were too expensive And now that we're seeing the costs rising, we're learning more about how to share them so that you can actually get your job done for a much lower price point. Right. Uh, What do you think about, uh, I'm going to throw something out. I just want to get your opinion about it. When I first looked at cloud computing, I thought, wow, the pendulum is swinging back to the old time-sharing oh, absolutely. Uh, pattern that you know, said Ross that. Perot built uh, EDS on. Uh, you know, the mainframe was expensive. Very expensive. So we learned how to share it, right? And and when we learned how to share it, there was priorities and queues and management of it because we wanted to get a lot of computation in and out of that very, very expensive resource. PCs weren't so expensive, so everybody got their own because sharing's kind of annoying. It's annoying to share. And now we're looking at the power, we're looking at the costs on the whole, and we're back into a world where, wow, if we share, it's really worth it. Right. So I guess if you live long enough, you're bound to see things repeat themselves. Uh, the wheel of reincarnation, it happens mm-hmm. a lot. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our very good friends at Telerik. Hey, don't you sometimes wish the Internet was more like television? Instead of looking for some info scattered all over the place, You pick up the remote control, sit back, and enjoy browsing through hundreds of channels. Well, your dreams might be coming true with an exciting new resource brought to you by Telerik, the Telerik TV Video Portal. 
Telerik TV is a gateway to all Telerik video resources, webinars, product videos, how-tos, training materials, and much more. The videos are organized in a way that makes it easy to find answers to your problems or discover new tips and tricks as you browse various video channels. What's more, Telerik TV was built using Telerik's own RAD controls for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Open Access ORM, making it a great showcase of those products. So go on, pick up the remote, and start watching Telerik TV today at tv.telerik.com. Wow, that was cool. Uh, you know, I've been thinking about green power myself quite a bit, and I was just chatting with Richard uh, on IM as we were listening to this, that um, they've made a lot of strides both in solar technology, of course, in the last five years. It's ridiculous, the the printing on film, and uh, and also the wind turbines for the vertical axis wind, wind turbines are really getting a lot of... Um, uh, really getting a lot of press these days because they, they don't take a lot of, they can capture wind from any direction and they're perfect for the top of big city buildings where there's a lot of wind just blowing around indiscriminately. They're also a lot more resistant to bird strikes and things like that. Have you, have you seen the, uh, the two towers that they built in Bahrain have the, uh, the three big, uh, propellers yeah. between them? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just awesome. So I, I think I'm going to take exception with Pat's idea that the power that a machine consumes costs more than the machine itself. I mean, power's gone up, but it's not that much. There's also another angle on this whole thing where you look at where data centers are lo- located these days. You know, Microsoft built that huge data center right beside a, a hydroelectric dam for a reason. Wow. Because mo- most of the time, hydroelectric dams are a long way away from where people need their power, mm. and half the power gets wasted just trying to transmit it. True. So you could think, if they put the data center right beside it, they're consuming power that otherwise would have been wasted as buzzing in high-tension lines. So, yeah, I, I mean... I think we're going overboard in the sense that, that the data center power consumption is so much of a problem and so forth. I mean, I'm falling on the hardware side here, so I'm very much a hardware guy. Biggest problem I have with power these days in data sensors is that we've now densified our racks so much that we have 42U racks now that are pulling four kilowatts, like just massive amounts of power. And then... You, the side effect of that is a ton of heat. So we have huge air conditioners to try and keep those things from melting. And they get this double whammy of I'm consuming a, a huge chunk of power to run that gear and a huge chunk of power to keep it from melting. Right. So there's, there's that crazy balance between those two things. So now you're seeing stuff like data centers in Iceland, because if they want to cool the rack, they just open the door. That's a very good idea. Build a, like a, a roast chicken restaurant next to, you know, where you have the rack. So <laughs> you can take the heat from that and cook a little chicken, right? You see, but that's the way you should be thinking in the, you know, in the 21st century. Seriously, that that's oh, yeah, what we got to think about. Parasitic heat u- utilization. I mean, there's lots of good things going on there. I just think that there's a bit of hyperbole going on as well. Power Computers don't consume a lot of power when they don't have workloads. Right. Like the, the, but the, and there is a point to be made that we've had whole racks of machines that are running at 5% of utilization. And so the overhead of operating is actually a significant amount of the power it consumes. And virtualization stops that. And now we get utilization 50, 60, 70, 80%. And so we don't have the, the overhead operating of a machine compared to the amount of power consumed doing work is a much better ratio. I, we're just starting to get to the point where we start talking about things like watts per transaction. 
You know, that's just not a way we've normally thought. How much power did it take to actually complete that sale? Yeah. And that's when stuff like overhead and power and efficiency starts to fall out. And you see that and go, well, this is dumb. But I I just think that we're we it's easy to get overboard on this. We're making the nice thing about the sort of capitalist approach to this is saving money is a good idea. It's worth doing. And when it falls within the margins of the cost of the equipment, it just happens. And you're seeing it happening. It doesn't need advocacy. It's going to happen naturally anyway. So, Mark, I'm looking at the next file that you sent up, and it's just labeled Naked Objects. What's that all about? <laughs> That's a good question, Carl. I, uh, I was actually hanging out when we were recording Speaker Idol in Barcelona, and uh, one of the contestants uh, did a talk on Naked Objects. And I'd never heard of Naked Objects. It turns out this is an architectural design pattern, and uh, this is the guy that invented it. Uh, and I, I just had to find out more about it. So that's where this talk came from. All right, let's roll it and hear what he, what he has to say. Hello, .NET Rocks fans. This is Mark Dunn reporting to you from TechEd 2008 here in Barcelona, Spain. And I've just caught up with Richard Pawson, uh, who has a very interesting shirt. Uh, Richard, it says naked objects on your shirt. So I, uh, I'm kind of curious what naked objects are all about. Yeah, well, as long as you're not going to ask me to take the shirt off. Uh, yeah, naked objects is uh, it's actually the name of an architectural pattern uh, that I invented. You can you can look it up on on Wikipedia. It was in fact my my PhD thesis, uh, and it's also the name of my company, Naked Objects Group. Uh, we, we have a a software framework that implements the naked objects pattern. It's, it's not the only one. It's not the only implementation. There are other frameworks out there. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's a name that certainly attracts a certain amount of attention and sometimes a certain amount of ambiguity. <laughs> well, uh, what what's the pattern all about? Is, is there, uh, you know, is, I guess there are different types of patterns. I think of the, uh, the Gang of Four book, you know, Eric Gamma, Observer Patterns. Uh, what sort of pattern is the naked objects pattern? Okay, well, it's referred to as an architectural pattern, meaning that it's a pattern that, that if you choose it, defines your whole architecture to some extent. Uh, gotcha. So in that sense, it's it's equivalent to model view controller. Right. It's, right. it's, it's a way of thinking about how the whole system fits together. And, and in a nutshell, uh, what, what we're saying is that in, in the naked objects pattern, you have your domain objects, and uh, you make them uh, behaviorally complete, meaning you put all of the business logic and functionality onto your domain objects. So, so the customer object isn't just a collection of uh, scalar fields and relationships to other objects. It's also the encapsulation of all the functionality you want to do to or with a, a customer. And then what we're saying is in the naked objects pattern, you run that inside a framework that simply exposes those domain objects directly to the user as an object-oriented user interface. So, so the name is not just a kind of attention grabber. It is descriptive of what the pattern is doing. The, right. the what the user sees are the naked objects there, um, rather than rather than in a typical architecture where your domain objects are sort of hidden behind a task-oriented user interface and a whole bunch of presentation logic and so on. So, Richard, uh, speaking of uh Design patterns and uh, and domains. Uh, I imagine if you're going to use a uh, a design pattern like this, you'd have to be uh, 
pretty well committed to domain-driven design, wouldn't you? Yes, we're very well aligned to the idea of domain-driven design that, that, that Eric Evans is very much associated with. You've got to be committed to the idea that the most important thing in your business application uh, are the domain objects and that, that that's the representation of your business and that's going to determine what you're going to be able to do in future. Um, and, and really, I guess what we're saying is if you are committed to that, um, actually, you can get most of the system for free. Uh, and I think another thing is that uh, the, the naked objects pattern does actually, ironically, make it easier to do domain-driven design for the following reason, that um, first of all, we get we can get very, very rapid feedback. So, I mean, you, you, you can pick your first three or four domain objects and, 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 and put some properties and some methods on those, and you've instantly got a prototype to play with that the, the business users can play with. So, you, so you're going to get some feedback there. Um, and the second thing is that um, uh, it, it, it does force you to do the domain-driven design properly because if your user interface is nothing other than a reflection of the, the domain object model, um, you've got to do it right. I mean, if you see in a conventional system, if, if the user says, uh, oh, you know, I want it to do something, I want it to do this – well, there's all kinds of places you can stick that. You can stick it in the presentation layer. You can stick it in the business task layer. You can spread it across a few objects. Uh, in the naked objects pattern, you know, if they say, well, uh, how am I going to evaluate uh, the total business that a customer did last year? You've got to say, well, where does that belong? Where does that rightly belong on the domain model? Uh, because there is no other place to put it. There's no place other than the domain model to put your, your, your functionality. And so it forces you to get that right. And in the long run, you, you get a real payback from that in terms of the agility of the model. You don't end up with a, a, an ob, a set of domain objects that are any different to, to what you should end up with if you do domain-driven design on paper. So it doesn't put artificial constraints on it, but you're more likely, I suggest, to get to a better uh, domain object model that way. All right, very cool. Uh, I, I wanted to make sure we got one story in because you were telling me at one point uh, that you had a very close tie to the MVC uh, pattern. Uh, and <laughs> Closer than I wanted to. Um, a lot of people look at the naked objects pattern and they say well you know you're attacking the sacred cow which is is mvc uh i mean that is the pattern you know if you look up if you look up software pattern on wikipedia or anywhere else it, it always says you know such as mvc it's the pattern uh and, and and surely you know you're undoing all the value of that well the the story that you're referring to is that that the naked objects pattern was my PhD thesis, and uh, as you know, when you, when you've completed all your years' work, you you have to go into I think in a, in the states it's called a defense. We we call it a, a viva uh, here in Europe, right? And um, there's an external examiner that's supposed to give you the toughest grilling of your life on sure. defending your ideas, and it's very often difficult uh, to figure out who the right external examiner is who can understand what you've said and and has a viewpoint, and who do they pick for my external examiner. I, I did the, uh, the PhD in Dublin. They picked a guy named Trygvi Reinskalk from, uh, from Norway. Now, that name may not be very well known, but he is the man who invented Model View Controller in 1978 in Xerox Park. And uh, so you can imagine what my reaction was, uh, knowing that I was going to have to defend this, this, you know, wacky architectural pattern that everybody thinks 
contradicts MVC against the man who invented it. That and, had to uh, be a bit stressful. It was a little stressful going in. Uh, it turned out not to be stressful once I started. He's a very gracious man, I have to say. Uh, and um, uh, and he said, you know, uh, this idea, I think we had something in mind like this way back in the late 70s. Uh, the, uh, the idea that you shouldn't have to write views and controllers, that, that there should be a kind of default mode in which the, uh, the, the, the model objects are exposed as an object-oriented user interface. Um, and so, uh, you know, he was very, very uh, complimentary about that and, in fact, volunteered afterwards to write a foreword to my thesis. And, and you can download that if, you, if you're interested in, in the sort of rigorous approach to this. You can don- download that thesis from uh, our website. All right, cool. And speaking of your website, uh, how how do listeners get there to uh, to uh, check out Naked Objects? Yeah, okay, so it's www.nakedobjects.net. Uh, and the, the Naked Objects framework, which is our implementation and which we're, we're launching here at TechEd, um, there is an express edition which is completely free and you can download that from, from the site. And you can be writing your first application within literally minutes. There, there are some videos on the website that will show you how to do it uh, if you need a, a hand getting started. Well, well, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I thought so. I mean, it, uh, it, it was so cool that we did a, a TechEd Online video and actually had Richard do a demo uh, to show us how his tool works. So uh, he was fascinating to talk to. Uh, really enjoyed meeting him. Excellent. So, uh, and you could go to TechEd online and uh, see. I, I guess it's linked from his website, so you can just go there and see it. Um, next, you talk to Jay Rocks. We love Jay. Yeah, man. I, I knew Jay from way back in the VB days. The VB you days. Know, he, go, he goes way back. So what's he working on now? Uh, Jay is in a mobility role now, and uh, I, I had never really gotten to know Jay that well, but uh, I've spent a lot of time uh, hanging out with Jay uh, in Spain, so he's a great guy. All right, well, let's listen to Mark Dunn interviewing Jay Rocks. So, Jay, you've, uh, you've changed roles since we last talked. I, I know you from being a VB guy from way back. Well, that was definitely a couple of years ago, Mark. Um, after VB, I went on and worked on the VS business for a few years, and then just about five weeks ago, I moved over from Visual Studio to look at developers on Windows Mobile. Well, that sounds like an exciting new job. It definitely is. There's a lot of opportunity in that space, a lot of cool innovation coming. Well, that that's really neat. Uh, tell me a little bit about mobile. Uh, what's what's the new stuff with IE uh, Mobile 6? And, sure. And another question, why would developers really care about this platform? Okay. Couple of good questions there. Well, one of the things that we announced this week at TechEdemia is we've made emulators available for IE Mobile 6. One of the things that people have had concerns about on Windows Mobile for a little while now is that the browser, Pocket IE, wasn't as good at rendering what they'd see on their desktop. So what we did is we took the IE 6 rendering engine along with some of the JavaScript improvements that have come in IE7 and IE8, and made them available as a part of IE Mobile 6. This is something we announced at CTIA back in April, and we're just making the emulators available now. What this means for users is that they get a browser on their mobile device that has the same rendering engine as the desktop, plus things like pan and zoom support that you'd need, so you can actually surf 
pretty much any website that you'd surf on your desktop on your mobile device and get a very full fidelity experience. The emulator is being available this week means that developers can start trying this out, can even run an Ajax page, and just see how it will behave, see whether or not they're going to get the rendering that they that they expect. And from a development point of view, what this means is that if you're targeting the mobile device, you now have the option of using a very full-featured browser to build a mobile web app. Or, of course, you still have the Visual Studio support for building client applications that run directly on the devices themselves. I'm not sure all of the .NET Rocks listeners know, but right from within Visual Studio, you can go build a mobile application and then deploy it to your device and test it in emulators. So in addition to the support that comes within Visual Studio, we have updated an updated SDK and updated emulators that are available for download that just plug right into Visual Studio. Oh, cool. Uh, I noticed that you guys are handing a resource kit out, uh, I think, at the PDC and also here. Is that right? We are, yes. Uh, so is that all a developer needs if they get the resource kit? Does that have the new emulators on it? Or I imagine you can download those as well. The resource kit that we're handing out was actually put together before we did the announcement of the IE Mobile 6 emulators. So we have even more recent emulators that are on the resource kit. It's fun working on a team that's innovating all the time because you get to watch your swag become obsolete pretty quickly. But it's great that we have the new emulators available. We actually just launched a new website that's focused at developers. So we have developer.windowsmobile.com, which is going to be one of our portals for giving developers a lot of the information that they need, both for figuring out what they need to develop on the Windows mobile platform, figuring out how they transfer their existing skills from desktop application development or web application development over to Windows mobile, and making sure that they have the latest resources that we've made available. So that's something that we just took live, I guess it's two weeks ago at PDC. So, again, developer.windowsmobile.com, great place for people to go check out. All right, I'll uh, I'll be sure to check that out myself. Uh, I love the way the emulators work in Visual Studio. Uh, So, you know, you can sort of see, preview what the app's going to look like. These new emulators, do they work uh, with older versions of Visual Studio? Uh, What's sort of your entry point if you want to start working with them? Sure. The emulators and the SDK will all work with Visual Studio 2005 and Visual Studio 2008. So if in Visual Studio 2005, it's standard or pro. In VS 2008, it's the pro edition. And that gives developers everything that they need to get going for building mobile devices. Well, cool. Uh, well, speaking of mobile devices, uh, I imagine in your new role, you get to see all the uh, the hot new devices that, that are coming out. Uh, what have you seen lately that you have thought is really cool? I have to say, one of the cool side benefits of my new job is the fact that I get to play with a lot of the new phones when they come to market. Some of the things that I think people are going to be pretty excited about are the Samsung Omnia, which is just a flat panel display phone. You've got the Samsung, you've got the HTC Touch Diamond, which is coming out on with Sprint in the U.S., and I believe there will be other carriers picking it up as well. Um, that's another flat panel display that has some UI that HTC put together. Um, and then there's new phones like, for those who like keyboards, 
there's new phones like the Palm Trio that just came out that's a touchscreen device that also has a keyboard built in. So great for people that do a lot of text messaging or emailing from their phone itself. Right. You know, I'm still looking for the perfect phone. I almost want something that I can wear on my wrist, like Dick Tracy, and just talk to it without having to really, you know, get a stylus or, or use a finger or a thumb. Well, one of the things that we're very proud of in Windows Mobile is that we offer all of our OEMs lots of choice in terms of how they develop their phones, and so there's lots of choice for consumers. I personally haven't seen your Dick Tracy wrist phone being developed, but that doesn't mean there's not somebody out there trying to make a Windows Mobile device that does exactly that. Only in the comics. That's the only place I've seen one either. Uh, well, I tell you what, uh, let's, let's dig in a little bit and talk about what uh, developers... Uh, I guess need to do to ramp up to develop for Windows Mobile. If I, you know, take me, I'm a, a standard, you know, uh, Windows Forms developer. I do some web work. Uh, as a skill set, what sort of learning curve is involved in me wanting to develop a mobile app? Sure. If you're a Windows Forms developer or a web developer, you already know Visual Basic.net or C Sharp. And since Windows Forms runs natively on the device, as a part of the .NET Compact framework, you'll find that you can create a new project in Visual Studio and specify whether or not you want VB or C Sharp and go from there in terms of just building the application in the emulator. And the emulator will show up on the design surface in Visual Studio. So build the application in a layout on Visual Studio. Put your code behind like you regularly would. Connect to it in the emulator. Um, debug it um, and get a lot of your just watch a lot of your development skills transfer from the desktop or the web over to the device itself and this is something where again at developer.windowsmobile.com we are now going to be putting up even more of our content in terms of how to develop this we have lots of exciting training content coming over the next six to eight months. So lots of things for people to be excited about in terms of being able to reuse their existing skills from Windows Forms or web development on the mobile device. All right, very cool. Uh, are there specialized controls that you use to, to lay the UI out? Or uh, I've, I've never built a mobile app, so I'm, I'm not sure what, what would be involved. Not only do we have controls within Visual Studio that from Windows Forms or even the ASP.NET mobile controls that are best used for laying out a web app and making sure that they're respectful of the fact that the mobile device isn't a desktop. As much as you may be able to use the same skills, it's different UI layouts, it's different bandwidth constraints. One of the things that surprised me is I was looking at something the other day that's a 12 meg download. And on the desktop device, that's a nothing. Sure. On a mobile device, I had to reset my whole scale because tw downloading 12 meg to a mobile device can be a pretty chunky download. I bet. And so a lot of the controls, now that wasn't a controls package that I was looking at with 12 meg, but a lot of the controls are designed to keep in mind that there are different constraints in terms of screen real estate, in terms of bandwidth, in terms of battery life. And just like on the desktop or web development, Visual Studio has a pretty rich ecosystem of controls vendors that build great controls for people that want a UI that's different or more advanced than what we provide with the out-of-the-box controls.
Oh, so good to hear Jay again. Mark, uh, I was surprised to hear that you haven't done any mobility programming, even just messing around. Oh, I, I guess I've messed around with the emulators. I've just never built something that I've put on a phone. Oh, okay. It's still a hassle to do development for mobility. Like, it's not an easy thing to do. From what I hear, though, it's easier than in trying to develop for any other kind of mobile device out there, though. Like, the yeah. development story, because you have Visual Studio and the emulator, is is pretty darn good. I was happy when they finally got serialization um, for objects on the, on, the, on the phone because trying to, you know, a lot of people do mobile development with sockets on those things because they're using Wi-Fi and they right. want, and they, and, you know, memory is uh, at a minimum and processing power is at a minimum and they want to just do some quick and dirty stuff without having a lot of XML goo. So it was really nice to be able to package up objects and ship them over sockets with serialization. Good stuff. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think it's just going to get easier because the uh, the hardware is getting faster. The resources are becoming more abundant uh, on these devices now. So, uh, you know, those limitations aren't quite as bad as they were three years ago or even four years ago. It seems like we're getting closer and closer to the point where we're going to have as much horsepower in our handheld uh, phone as we've got on our current generation laptops. Of course, their computers are going to keep moving forward too, but we're, it's getting, the difference is getting narrower and narrower. We're basically using the same development model now. I was also happy when I was able to um, log in with a remote connection on my mobile phone and reset a service on a server. Awesome. <laughs> you know, sitting in a bar somewhere. That's just great. <laughs> <laughs> From the guy well, guys? who plays his piano from uh, Europe uh, over in New London, <laughs> that's right? That's right. Yeah, who does that? <laughs> who does that? That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> well, that's the show, guys. Mark, it's been such a pleasure talking to you again. And uh, have fun in Atlanta doing all those things that you do. Well, thanks, Carl. It's always uh, great to get back and do a show or two. I appreciate it. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.